1: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War. On this episode of our Spanish Civil War interview series, I was joined by Dr. Stephanie Wright, the author of Glorious Brothers, Unsuitable Lovers, Moroccan Veterans, Spanish Women, and the Mechanisms of Francoist Paternalism. We discussed the treatment of wounded war veterans in post-Civil War Spain and Morocco. We also discuss Dr. Wright's current research into sexual violence in Francoist Spain. As always, you can head over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com interviews to find more information about Dr. Wright's works. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spanish Civil War interview series. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Wright, Um, and today we're going to discuss Dr. Wright's research into the treatment and experiences of Spanish Civil War veterans during and after the Civil War. Dr. Wright, how's it going today?
3: I'm fine. Thank you. How are you?
2: I'm I'm here. I'm here, and that's about all I'm going to say. In Francois, Spain, during and after the war, there was an effort to recast wounded veterans maybe in a more positive light. Uh, what caused this shift in how military veterans who were disabled were treated within Spanish society, which I know was they were not treated well in pre-Civil War times?
3: Yeah, and actually, to answer your question, I probably need to go back and look how disabled veterans were, were viewed and spoken about before the Civil War. So for many years, veterans of Spain's colonial wars um, had been managed within what was called the Cuerpo de Invalidos, or the Invalids Corps. Um, and that that corps was part of the armed forces, and many who became part part of it remained in active service, and that's quite important because it meant that they were still um, they could still benefit from things like automatic promotions for seniority, and that they were still um, considered active um, servicemen. So then, when the Second Spanish Republic comes in in 1931, they dissolve the Invalids Corps, um, so members. Of that of course, still still get pensions, but they're no longer in active service. They no longer get those um, seniority promotions. And I'm not sure whether you've discussed this elsewhere in, in the podcast series, but that dissolution formed part of a whole range of reforms that the Republic brought in to uh, and particularly Manuel Afana, who was the uh, the war minister at the time, who, who brought in all these measures to reduce the size and the influence of the Spanish army, which of course, uh, significant. Problems um, in the preceding years, but also throughout the 19th century as well. So, anyway, the the dissolution of the Invalids Corps um, during the Republic formed part of the, those measures, which were were deeply unpopular uh, within military circles and seen as very anti-patriotic. Okay, so what does the Franco side uh, then do during the Civil War with disabled men who begin to return from the front with with disabilities? Do they res- resurrect this this Invalids Corps that the, the Republic had? um dissolved well the answer to that is but they kind of do so <laughs> in April 1938 so still during the war uh, the Franco side creates a body which administratively looks quite similar to the form the, the pre-republican um, invalids corps and um, so there's a similar conceptualization of disabled uh, men as active soldiers um, and there are similar kind of cultural features so for example um, Miguel, the, the, Cervantes, the, um, the very famous author, um, is um, commemorated as the first um, disabled veteran of Spain um, in the Invalid's Corps, and he is also um, that way in, in the new Corps um, introduced um, under Francoism. But there are some key differences, and the main one is the name. The Corps is no longer the Invalid's Corps, but rather the Honourable Corps of the Mutilated in the War for the Fatherland. <laughs> which is a bit of a mouthful. Spanish is el cuerpo de mutilados guerra por la patria. And so those, those admitted were given the quite ostentatious title of mutilated gentleman or caballeros mutilados. Um, and so in this sense, the Francoist regime's treatment of the war disabled kind of really shines a spotlight on the interplay between continuity and um, kind of new elements in the regime's governing ethos. So there's a lot of continuity in the administrative structures of um, of, of the regime, but also um, in in the new core. And when I say continuity, I mean kind of continuity with the pre-republican period, and that's quite helpful for the regime because it brings a sense of legitimacy. So the idea that the regime is just a continuation of what has what what was already there before the republic, and it's the republic that is the, the kind of non-legitimate part of, of Spanish um, history. But there are also novel elements, um, which signalled a shift from what had come before um, that that Republican period, um, or rather a kind of mainstreaming of certain military values, which um, had previously been kind of preserve of a select group of, 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 of military men. So, the rebranding of war invalids as mutilated gentlemen reflected the regime's emphasis on the importance of sacrifice in war and the idea that these sacrifices were really the, uh, the pinnacle of Spanish masculinity and the pinnacle of Spanish patriotism. And I should say that this emphasis on sacrifice in battle and honor was really um, kind of linked to the culture of Spanish Foreign Legion and the Army of Africa in general. So, the Army of Africa was the Spanish Foreign Legion. And the Moroccan regular forces, um, which tended to operate in the the northern kind of protectorate in in northern Morocco, in northern Morocco. Sorry, um, but the founder of the the Foreign Legion, a man called Josemiel Astray, who was uh, was himself a, a double amputee, he was selected to head up the um, disabled veterans corps during the civil war. So there's a very clear link between. Um, the the Disabled Veterans Corps during the Civil War and the the Legion and this kind of culture of um, sacrifice and honour. So so the new kind of Mutilated gentleman's Corps really reflects the idea of kind of continuity of previous structures um, but also the kind of mainstreaming of this kind of military culture that was that kind of um, was forged within the colonial wars of the early 20th century um, which had had been very um, informative to um, a lot of the, the, the generals and the um, the armed forces personnel who would then op, you know, occupy quite a prominent position in, in the coup but also in the regime um, including Franco himself who who kind of cut his teeth in, in the African sphere as well. Um, but also kind of broadly in terms of PR I suppose um, when the regime was trying to paint the civil war as this glorious and holy crusade that was meant to regenerate Spain and purge it from the sickness of so-called Marxism, it was certainly a very kind of clever move to present the Frankist war wounded and um, to prevent them from, from being seen as invalids that were to be pitied. So I should say that um, even though men in the pre-Republican invalid corps were technically in active service, there was certainly a stigma around that, that invalid label. Um, so that the mutilated gentleman rebranding really helped to sidestep that stigma um, and actually, there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest that the dis- Frankest war disabled were considered to be quite a privileged group. Um, so the material benefits were pretty meagre, um, as was often the case um, after, after conflicts uh, you know, all over the world. Um, but we, we see a lot of cases elsewhere in Europe where uh, benefits are, are pretty um, pretty meagre. But they were, Frankest veterans were treated better than, than a lot of people in Spain during the Civil War and and in the post-war. So uh, the post-war period, a period of extreme economic deprivation, have around 200,000 people according to recent estimates of um, who die of starvation and related illnesses. So you know really extreme poverty Um, and so in comparison to, to those people and also more importantly in comparison to Republican disabled veterans who are completely ignored by the regime Franco's veterans do appear to be um, privileged citizens um, under the regime. Um, And that kind of duality between the two cohorts of veterans is is really quite blatant. So there's, you know, the very dark humour of the post-war. People used to joke about the fact that Franco's disabled veterans were mutilated gentlemen, whereas Republican veterans were just, the polite translation for that is something like damned cripples. And then later, dissidents really kind of reappropriate the figure of the mutual gentleman as a symbol of the regime and the symbol of the regime's um, decrepitude decrepitude and and decay. So it's it's really quite interesting. And in in terms of kind of thinking comparatively with what's going on elsewhere with disabled veterans in in the UK or in France, um, you you really don't get that sense that Franco's disabled veterans are these emasculated figures um, and are really marginalized from society no instead sp- instead in spain they are really kind of they are clearly on the winning side of, of, of the war and they're not viewed um, in in that way
2: something i try to point out as well especially coming from a modern viewpoint especially i'm an american many of the listeners of the podcast are americans you know uh, but elsewhere in the world i think there's a very different view of veterans at this time in history, uh, when you look around Europe and in other places.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, so you mentioned that, that these sort of uh, disabled war veterans uh, had a, kind of a privileged place in society. And I know that one of the things that, uh, one of these privileges that they had was that a certain number of public sector positions were filled by members uh, of these groups. Uh, Was this the only way, I guess, were there other examples of sort of uh, how these men were elevated within society?
3: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And it's quite um, a tricky one to answer, um, even though it sounds quite straightforward. So, yes, legislation was put in in place to support disabled veterans, the Franco side, which included um, reserving 30 percent of vacancies for mutilated gentlemen um, in a range of sectors, uh, very often in, in public in the public sector um, and on top of that um, the regime provided pensions for the most severely disabled so those who couldn't work were, were given um, supposedly given pensions. There are also um, well there were also more kind of non-material privileges granted to the war main so for example seating um, was reserved for them in, uh, on public transport, they were also granted the right to skip queues in shops um, which could be really important I mean now we're, we're used to seeing queues outside shops and you know it's still a kind of thing at, at times of food shortages it can be really beneficial to be able to, to, to skip the line and also that's a very kind of visible uh, visible benefit. Um, there were also a lot of commemorative events held um, in honour of the Frankfurt Water Day Board. so football matches, bullfights, to held in their honour and so all of these kind of public and displays of honouring the war, the war named, are really important for cementing perceptions of Franco's veterans as these favoured citizens, um, especially in the context where the regime had so many enemies. So people with a Republican backgrounds were often purged from their their jobs, um, or imprisoned, or forced into exile, or even killed. So you know, within that context, all of these kind of benefits really, you know, are very striking. But then this is where a closer look at the experiences of Francois war disabled start to kind of trouble
2: I noticed you used the yeah, word supposedly when discussing yeah. Uh, yeah. pensions I
3: chose, chose my words carefully there um because I, I don't want to give the impression that Francoist veterans particularly the rank and file that they, that they were comfortable And um, because when we, we kind of look at at what what the what the benefits that they received actually meant it's very difficult to it's very difficult to view them as victors um, in the way that we might imagine um, that, that, that they were. And I think if we, you know, if we focus on the, the utter neglect of Republicans, and, and I just want to be clear, I'm not minimising that at all. Um, but if we just focus on that, then we do lose sight of of actually how measly the measures um, were in place, for, you know, even for Francoist veterans. So just to, get, to give you a few examples of that, um, the Mutilated Gentlemen's Corps, operated along the basic assumption that most disabled veterans would be classed as useful and so that was the label that they were given um, and that they would support themselves entirely through through work and so only those with the most severe wounds would receive a pension to live off. Now that sounds fair until you look at what the categories um, consisted of so the the useful category was absolutely huge so that included veterans with wounds between um, 11 and 90% visibility. Um, if you're wondering what that means, um, because these are a little bit odd, 11% could be the loss of a middle finger, for example, um, while the amputation um, of an entire arm was was only 80%. So you could have lost an entire arm or an entire leg, and you were still expected to support yourself entirely, um, entirely through work. Um, and that, that's different to, for example, the French legislation after the, the First World War, where um, it's more kind of graduated, where um, you might not receive a full pension if you're, you know, you're only 50% disabled, but you would receive something, um, whereas that's not the case in Spain. And then when people were considered wounded enough to receive a pension, those pensions were calculated calculated according to rank. The incomes for the rank and file were actually pretty limited. Um, so to give you a sense of that, soldier received between 6,000 and 12,000 per cent per year, and that was decided in 1938, but then the rates weren't changed until 1950, 1958. <laughs> um, so, <sighs> over the years, that, that income really just um, kind of drops, and, and, and the, the kind of privilege that, that come, came from those material benefits in the 1930s, by the 1950s, really kind of starts to become eroded. And I should probably say that um, Francoism, like in Nazi Germany, like in uh, Fascist Italy, adopted um, a kind of pronatalist um, stance and and um, introduced certain pronatalist policies. So disabled veterans were expected to have families. Um, they were expected to support not only themselves, but but a wife and children, and and they on on the incomes that they were they were given, and on the um, it, it was often very difficult to support. Uh, to support for themselves and and their families and then also just another <laughs> kind of thing to add to this um, is that those who were in work um, if we look at what kinds of employment the disabled were were helped to get um, a lot of this work is very um is, is unskilled work it's it's poorly paid and um, it's work that again in that post-war period of extreme um economic hardship is a very real privilege But then over the long term, there are no opportunities for career progression. There are a few opportunities for job satisfaction. Um, That, you know, these aren't, um, these are employments that compensate for the career that a veteran might have had if he was never uh, wounded in the first place. And then just to add another little thing or element to this um, is that we really need to think about the way that we're thinking about Francoism and, um, or the, the kind of community of victors under Francoism. So the kind of, um, the community of mutilated gentlemen is a really um, interesting insight into that because you have, or you need to think about, um, or you, you have kind of two, this is just quite crude, but generally speaking, a kind of two, um, I guess, strands of, of mutilated gentlemen. So you have those who continue to, to pursue military careers after the civil war so they they remain um as professional soldiers and um, in active service and um, so again if they're in active service then they they can benefit from those automatic promotions by seniorities so a lot of the veterans that you know even if even if they enter the army at quite a low, gra- low rank in the civil war by the end of their lifespan they could they could be promoted to to colonels and you know that is the case and actually um if if you were that kind of mutilated gen- then you did fairly well out of the system and you could live comfortably off that but if you were um, kind of a a, a civilian veteran quote-unquote which is kind of of a a strange term but if you if you were just kind of conscripted into the army and then you left the army after the civil war and you weren't part of the the military establishment in that way you really didn't experience that same kind of security um, as as those military um, military gentlemen did so that there's really a kind of I think when you're thinking about American veterans and um yeah you really need to kind of think about what, what their background backgrounds are and what kind of careers they, they were pursuing in in the aftermath of, of, of the war um yeah to really kind of get a sense of, of of where they sat along those um those social hierarchies um yeah so anyway just to kind of be clear I don't I, I Franco Spain was in no way a utopia for, for disabled men, even on the winning side, and especially um, those in the rank and file.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, oh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
2: you were talking about how veterans were classified and how they sort of received, uh, benefits. So at this point in history, there was a, a general lack of knowledge about mental illnesses that were experienced by military veterans. Uh, today we call that post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, was this, was this recognized in Spain at all, um, during this period?
3: Again, yeah, that's a really great, great question. And, um, yeah, so so to get to even get into the mutilated gentleman's corps, even if you you know you had been injured on the Francoist side, on the, the right side um, for for the dictatorship's purposes, um, you you could only access those limited benefits that came with um, membership of the corps if you uh, managed to go through this um, kind of quite stringent application process, where there was certain kind of um, eligibility criteria um, and mental illness was, was kind of problematic in terms of that eligibility criteria so it, it's quite complex but long story short is that mental instability caused by physical injury such as a blow to the head was considered eligible for um, the entry into, into the mutilated gentleman's corps. but those with psychological trauma and um, were not granted entry into the court and so didn't receive benefits. Um, In terms of where that kind of comes from, um, it has a lot to do with the scientific tradition in which Spanish psychiatrists or rather Francoist psychiatrists were embedded. Um, So German psychiatry was really influential to to Francoist psychiatrists, um, like Antonio Bejo Nacera, who was the head of psychiatric services um, and Francoist army during the Civil War. So um, just to give a sense um, of of the the relevance of that. So in the the late 19th century, uh, Hermann Oppenheim in in Germany had introduced this traumatic neurosis diagnosis, which had enabled um, men with um, trauma-induced conditions to to be recognised and to receive pensions. But then from around the time of the Great War, that, that diagnosis was falling increasingly out of favour and was becoming increasingly marginalised within um, German psychiatry. So, and, and essentially that the new kind of um, diagnosis that became or that came into, into vogue was the hysteria diagnosis, which really situated responsibility for mental illness in, in, in the individual weakness of a particular soldier. So Vallejo who, like I said, would, would go on to lead um, the psychiatric services on the Franco side during during the Civil War, he was actually in Germany um, at the time that all of those discussions were, were happening. So he was part of an international Spain was neutral during the First World War, and he was um, part of an international commission um, inspecting POW camps. And so he witnessed all of those um, debates happening firsthand. I mean, vallejo Najera wasn't the only person or the only Spanish psychiatrist at the time that kind of followed that. Uh, German, German tradition, but it really just helped to explain the Frankish regime's stance on mentally ill veterans. Um, so, coming back to the the, the application process for uh, entry in, into the core, um, part of the application process involved proving a link between your condition and your service in the war. Um, but if the science at, at the time didn't acknowledge that link and didn't acknowledge that external factors such as war could cause trauma, then there was no way for an individual soldier to prove that there was a link between um, his his mental illness and the war. And of course, this denial of that causal link was was very useful for the regime because it completely absolved it of any responsibility and saved saved the dictatorship a a whole load of cash um, in, in disability payments. But, but having said all of that, there were some limited provisions for what the regime termed military lunatics. Um, so that was the, um, the, the language used at the time, Spanish is mentes. So legally speaking, um, these lunatics were, um, were were those who had either who were experiencing mental instability caused by physical injury, injury to the brain or, and this is more interesting, um, people with endogenous conditions like schizophrenia, like psychosis or paranoia, as long as they'd served in the army at least 10 years. So, of course, that didn't apply to the, the vast majority of soldiers who were just who just served during the period of, of, the, of the Civil War. Um, so again, mental health provisions really reflect that kind of civilian military dichotomy within this cohort of disabled veterans, where um, those who remain close to the military establishment can benefit from from that from from that protection, and I don't want to overstate again the benefits that that mentally ill veterans received. You know, the, the few who did, um, that proximity to the military, military establishment really did offer a little, a little bit of protection there um, in a way that, that um, civilian veterans, if you like, didn't um, w- weren't kind of covered, and then. Another kind of aspect to all of this that we, we need to think about is that all of those discussions around war neurosis and all of the kind of legislation around military lunatics um, ignored men who returned from war with depression, um, with guilt, um, with conditions like alcohol abuse, and we can really we can get a sense that people did suffer um, psychologically with with those kinds of conditions. From um, if we look at psychiatric files from um, Temporary asylums, but also the writings of clinical psychiatrists like Carlos Castilla del Pino, who, who worked with uh, n- not just veterans, but um, he wrote about some patients that he, he dealt with who, who uh, had trouble dealing with difficult memories of the war. So, so we know that men were often deeply affected by their participation in the conflict, but we'll never know the full extent of, of the psychological fallout of, of the Spanish War, um, unfortunately. But Absolutely, there was certainly a lot, a lot of, um, kind of mental instability resulting from the war. And there was a certain acknowledgement of that, both um, in terms of, you know, by psychiatrists who, who worked with, um, directly with, with patients, but also on a kind of more popular level in, in literature in particular, you can really get a sense that there is a general kind of awareness that there are some people who came back from the war changed um, and a, a good example of that is from um, In Laforet's uh, novel *Nada*, which includes a couple of characters who um, who who are mentally unstable, and she does make that connection between their service um, in the Civil War and their mental instability. So, yeah, it's very difficult to quantify, and there there are no statistics on it, but the problem existed.
2: Moroccan soldiers were seen as a critical part of the Spanish army in the years before the Civil War. How are they viewed within the context of the military and society? You know, were they thought of as anything close to equal? You know, how did their performance during the Civil War sort of maybe change what racism looked like in Spain?
3: Yeah, that's, um, again, a great a great question. And indeed, when we talk about Spanish Civil War veterans, we, especially on the Franco side, we really need to to talk about Moroccans, because they were such an important part of uh, the Francoist Armed Forces. So, so partly because of their reputation as um, skilled fighters, but also undoubtedly because as colonial troops, they were seen as more expendable Um, than Spanish troops. uh, Moroccan regulars were often used as as shock troops uh, during the Civil War, so they often played a leading role in some of the key battles and um, so in, ta- in terms of how they were viewed wi- within the military you know they were, they were known for or they had this kind of reputation for for their ferocity and um, on the battlefield and um, but there was also this kind of element of, of colonial pride um, in, in the Moroccan regular troops so uh, Moroccan soldiers were certainly seen as racially inferior Spaniards but Spanish officers had this kind of romantic view of, of the Regulares as this kind of you know, one of the last vestiges of Spain as an imperial power. So Spain um, lost its last American Pacific um, colonies in, in 1898, which uh, becomes known simply as a disaster, the, the, the disaster. So um, in that sense, the the, um, the Moroccan protector is really this kind of part of Spain's sense that it is still a colonial power and still an important um, world power. And actually, there's, there's still a lot of um, I guess kind of romanticism around that the Moroccan regulars within within the Spanish army. So there's, in the Spanish army there is still uh, there are still troops which are called uh, regulares so the, the regulars and even though they're mostly Spanish now they still uh, wear the the old um, kind of traditional uniform of, of the Moroccan regulars so the red caps and the uh, the white white cloaks. Um, I don't think there's been a discussion about uh, cultural appropriation um, in the Spanish army yet I sometimes wonder whether it's coming but it'll be interesting when it happens. Throughout Francoism um, the, the figure of the Moroccan Moor, uh, to use the language of time, is really important to um, kind of pay or prestige. Uh, Franco has his own Moorish guard, um, for example, made up of Moroccan troops. In, in terms of how they're viewed in society um, that's quite complicated and it, and it kind of depends so there's general racism so um certain expressions like Ay en la costa," there, there are moors on the coast um which is kind of an expression to say that there's um somebody dangerous or suspicious around you need to be careful and so there's those, those kinds of i guess like low level um racism i suppose but then um but then there's also a kind of more kind of positive side to things. So during the Civil War, a lot of Moroccan soldiers meet um, and form romantic attachments with Spanish women, for example. And um, so, and I mean, that often happens when Moroccans are in Spanish hospitals and, and they're being treated by, by Spanish nurses, nurses. Of course, when the regime catches wind, wind of this, they're, you know, they're really concerned about racial, racial mixing. And a lot of these couples um, are... Um, quite sadly, really um, prevented from seeing each other. A lot of the love letters are confiscated as a way of trying to, to separate them. But I mean, but the, the fact that these relationships existed um, really give a sense of how more kind of positive relationships could be developed on on the ground. And they, I'm sure they, you know, they weren't free of those kinds of racial hierarchies. But it does present a slightly kind of different, um, different, different side of things there. But I'm not sure how much empathy there was for for Moroccan soldiers. And I should probably say that another side that I haven't mentioned is that Moroccans were really depicted as these rapacious savages um, and Franco's generals, particularly um, was famous for this uh, speech that he gave where um, he would talk about uh, where he was kind of threatening uh, the Republican side. I'm saying that the Moroccans would come and um, slaughter the men and rape the women. And um, so you know this figure of the Moroccan war as this uh, as as these kind of barbarous characters was promoted on, on both sides um, really, um, which I think you know probably served to preclude any kind of empathy um, for for, the, for their sacrifices, really. In terms of policy, um so during the war. And post-war, there's certainly um, a sense that the regime needs to at least look like it's ca- it's caring for for its Moroccan troops. Disability provisions are a part of that. Um, so Moroccan troops who who become injured and and become disabled um, are are catered for within a a Moroccan um, version of the the Spanish honourable corps. But but also, I mean, during the war, the Francoist side goes out kind of attempts to keep the troops docile by catering for their religious customs so like, kind of special Muslim hospitals which provide halal food um, Moroccans are allowed to practice their their religion freely during their time in the army um, which is particularly striking uh, when you think about the fact that the war is depicted as this Catholic crusade against um, against the infidel um, but there is that kind of uh, that, that tolerance of of the cultural practices of, of Moroccans there but I mean, this kind of continues to an extent after the civil war. So particularly um, after the Second World War, when Spain is isolated from its European neighbours because of its, its open support spot, the Axis. Um, and the regime needs to find allies elsewhere. This kind of elsewhere includes the Arab world. So Spain continues to foster harmonious relationships with uh, relations with, with the protectorate. Um, so, for example, it makes uh, a big show of providing affordable housing and other kind of social measures in in northern Morocco. Um, so there is that kind of sense of um, the, that kind of sense of paternalism which um, remains beyond beyond the civil war and after the, the Second World War. But that paternalism drops off over time, especially after independence in in nineteen fifty.
2: You mentioned the sort of how Moroccan veterans are treated. I know that they create an honorable core of the Moroccan war mutilated, which has a yeah. Spanish name I'm not going to attempt. So but we've also discussed uh, earlier in this interview about how, you know, maybe the benefits that were provided to Spanish military veterans were not great. Uh, so how did the what was provided for Moroccan war veterans uh, kind of compare to that?
3: Yeah, so the, the Moroccan war, war Disabled, it's an interesting case because obviously they're recognised in a way that Republican veterans aren't, um, but the provisions for them are even more measly than they are for the Spanish rank and file. Um, and really, there was kind of a little attempt to rehabilitate them um, for the workplace. So, you know, work was su- such a huge focus for Spanish disabled veterans and this idea that they would kind of reclaim their. Um, or maintain their, their masculine identities and their, their roles as breadwinners to their, their families through work, you just don't get the same um, kind of rhetoric or the, or the same emphasis on that with uh, with Moroccans. Again, those who who were gravely disabled but not disabled enough to attain the higher categories of disability are the ones that, that fare the worst because they really kind of fall between um. The gaps in provisions there after Moroccan independence in, in 56 the regime essentially kind of washes its hands um of its responsibilities to, to those to that category and and to those who are who classified as useful so that at that time those veterans are either transferred to the Moroccan army or they receive a very small pension um, commensurate with their years of service and that might not have been um, that many years so and then on top of that you, you just really don't get the Linguistic squeamishness, I suppose, that you get with um, Spanish veterans. So Moroccan, Moroccan war disabled, aren't mutilated gentlemen um, like Spaniards, um, and the regime has no qualms really of, of referring to them as, as invalids or as useless. Um, so but on the surface, there's there is a core for Moroccan veterans, and there are provisions there, but there are quite stark differences in the treatment of disabled Spaniards or disabled Francoist soldiers. And, um, and Moroccans.
2: So outside uh, of just war veterans, I know your current research kind of looks at the uh, sexual abuse that occurred in Francoist Spain. And I think I've seen the phrase dishonest abuse. Uh, what does that mean? What is that research? Sort of what, what are you looking at right now?
3: Yeah, so I suppose um, so. the work that I'm doing at the minute kind of follows on um, on my interest of um, the body and how um, Spaniards experience um, the Civil War and Francoism through, through the body, through disability, through, through violence. Um, so my, my research at the minute looks particularly at how women under Francoism experience sexual violence and how sexual violence was dealt with in the courts, particularly um, how medical evidence was used um, by, by Francoism. Um, by the Francoist courts in in um, trials relating to sexual violence, yeah, I mean I'm still in the early stages of that that research, um, but it's it's really quite interesting in the sense that I guess when when I started out I was expecting to see um, a lot of um, I guess politically motivated sexual violence or you know violence where sexual violence where in the courts um, the political identities of the perpetrators and, and the victims um, formed a kind of important part of how um, how those court processes develop but as I've been doing the research um, I think I've been getting a sense of the, the more kind of subtle ways in which Francoism um, and or the construction of the Civil War affected um, women's experiences and, and not just women but um, sexual violence in, in general. So um, in terms of of how how women are um, are dealt with in the courts, you th- there's kind of there's a lot of, again there's a lot of continuity with the way in which um, chastity and um, purity, is um, regarded before the Civil War and and before Francoism, but what what you get under Francoism is, I guess, a hardening or kind of less leeway in terms of um, how how women are treated and not not just women but also children as well. So there's just um, in ideas of Catholicism and um, those kinds of, I guess longer standing um, ideas of female chastity are, are certainly there, but they're exacerbated by the fact that a lot of the administrators that are in the courts or um, are are less likely to give women the benefit of the doubt, or are, to put, to put it differently, uh, perhaps more willing to protect their military brothers, or to protect their um, people who they are in boots with, politically, and um, so really that kind of um, harshening of, of attitudes towards victims, so kind of an increase in, in victim skepticism, I suppose, kind of comes because, I suppose, more, more because of the, the tighter connections between the, the, the men who are in power, um, within those administrative roles, um, rather than because of, strictly speaking, kind of political motives, um, if, if that makes sense, but yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a really um, interesting project and it's it's one that I'm really looking forward to to getting back um and uh, getting back into the archives um where, when I can to 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 look into this more but it, it you really get the sense that because there is so much corruption within the Francos courts, victims really um really cling to medical evidence, and you know a, a lot of um victims actually will go will go to the doctors before they even present a, a rape denunciation to to the police and they'll say to the doctors, Do you, can you examine me? And then they will go to the doctors and say, look, I have this doctor note that, that says I have been raped. Um, and there is this kind of hope in the, um, I guess, objectivity of, of science there, uh, but actually often there, they, the, the victims are ultimately unsuccessful in their in their denunciations because um, there will be further medical examinations ordered, and the the um, the people conducting those examinations will be very happy to follow the steer of the court. Will be very happy um, to um, exploit the ambiguities of medical evidence. So I mean, even now, medical evidence in rape trials is extremely ex- extremely ambiguous, um, and and that was no less the case at the time. So. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I'm, it's a project that I'm still in the process of, of working on. But um, I think there again, we'll see the kind of more subtle ways in which um, the regime, aside from all of the, the purging, all of the, um, the very kind of blatant repression, um, I think the project will really, we'll see those kind of more subtle ways in which the regime um, shifted expectations of women Um and also um, expectation, or um, the ways in which justice was uh, was carried out on on crimes that weren't strictly speaking related to the kind of political instability
2: in Spain. Thank you for uh, coming and talking with me today uh, about about these uh, topics.
3: Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely.